Well, the question is simple. Are you too busy? Have you ever asked somebody, how are you? And the response comes back easily. Busy? How's life? Full, if not overwhelming. Sometimes people say, well, I have too much on my plate. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes other people will use the word slammed. I'm covered up, if you will. Let's see. Here's another depiction of something similar to this. Snowed under. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes we'll even say, I'm swamped. Maybe this describes your week a little bit. I don't know. But what is life like at your house? Do you ever feel like you're drowning? You know, the alarm clock goes off. You thought you just went to bed and now it's time to get up. But it's time for breakfast. You have to hurry, rush out the door. Our breakfast doesn't usually look quite like that. But anyway, you're multitasking as you're trying to get ready for your day. You want to try and squeeze in exercise if you can. Uh, I guess my slides are a little bit behind here. At our home, we're still changing diapers. I don't know when that may change. You have to iron something so it looks presentable. And before long, school will be starting. So you have the school schedule. You have the school calendar. Put all those things down. Hope that there's no conflicts, right? Then there's that car that you need to get into the shop. And it won't wait any longer or else you won't be able to drive it and make all those appointments on your busy schedule. And so you have to try and squeeze that in. And then, of course, that impacts the budget. And you have to sit down and look at the budget. How are we doing? How are things going to balance? And before you know it, then you're back at work, whether it's the hospital, whether it's a business type job or construction, whatever it is. And then there's email that's constantly nagging and pestering and annoying. Now, not your emails. I'm talking other people's emails. But you have to get to them all. And sometimes there's the follow-up email. Hey, I emailed you. Maybe you didn't get my email. And you're thinking, oh, I did get it. I just haven't opened it yet. Beyond that, then there's the dog that needs attention. He needs to go to the vet. Then we have to come back to the budget. I need to put that slide back in. Maybe it's cleaning the house. Oh, my goodness. We need to clean this place up. This place is a wreck. Kids, I want everything put away. Take all your toys and put them where they belong. I want the pillows fluffed. I want everything where it needs to be. And then there's laundry. Now, let me ask you, is this how it looks like at your house when you do laundry? You know, I have, I have one shirt, a, a pair of socks. I'm going to put it in this tiny little basket. And I'm just going to skip to my loo over and put it in. No, it looks more like this. How did this happen? You don't even know. You didn't think you owned that many clothes. And after basket, after basket, then there's the folding. You're up late at night folding. Why do we fold clothes? Otherwise, we're back to the ironing. I need to put that slide up again. Why don't we just buy new clothes now? We're back to the budget again. We're busy. Oh, and then there's another diaper to change. And we probably could talk about taking out the trash. I don't have a slide for that. But if you have too many diapers in the trash, you better believe me, that comes to the top of the list fast. And then there's that individual you need to visit at the hospital. And they're so glad that you did. But then you need to grocery shop because if you want to eat, I like to eat. Do you like to eat? Do you have things in your fridge? Yeah, I know at our house. I'm sorry, kids. We, I don't know what we're going to eat because we have nothing in the house. This is bad news because we like to eat. Not to mention we need to cut the grass. It's growing awfully fast these days. And then we need to cook something for dinner. And I tell you, life just doesn't stop. Do you ever feel that way? A little bit swamped, a little bit overwhelmed, lots to do. And you're just kind of like that mouse on a wheel turning, turning, spinning, spinning. What's the next thing? The next thing, the next thing, just trying to stay ahead. And then there's the call from mom. You got to get the call from mom. How you doing, son? I'm busy. 
What are you doing? I'm folding laundry. I'm changing diapers. I'm paying bills. We need Sabbath. Absolutely. You know, often in the midst of our frantic running from one thing to the next, it's often that we want more of a depth of character. Do you want a, a greater depth of character? Do you want to be described? I mean, do you want it on your, on your tombstone? A very surface person. Great person to ask about the weather. No. The problem is we don't have time to develop a depth of character. When are we going to fit it in? There's too many things to do. The schedule is already full. But often a life marked by depth is cultivated by periods spent in solitude and quietness and obscurity. I would imagine if we took a poll this morning, I, I remember they did this in my junior Bible class. He took a poll. He said, I want you to write down. It wasn't a hand poll. He says, I want you to write down. If you desire to be closer to God, just say yes on your paper under number one. And he asked some other things. Everybody in the class, he came back later and said, everybody in the class wanted to have a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would imagine if we did a similar poll here, all of you would say yes to that question. That's why you're here. Otherwise, you could be doing a hundred other things. Yet a major obstacle, I think, prevents us from getting to what we want, to there, to a closer relationship, a deeper relationship, is our lifestyle. We're simply too busy. Stop and think. When was the last time that you carved out? Not a morning. That's good. But not just a morning, not a thoughtful hour. When was the last time you spent all day alone with God? Can you think of a time? Has it been recently? How about even just half a day with God in quiet, in solitude, in prayer? You make arrangements for it. You set aside responsibilities. You say no to things. We're not good at that. We don't like that word, right? If I'm not careful, I'll break out into a country song. What part of no don't you understand? We don't understand it. We don't like to say it. We don't like to use it. We like to say yes. Can you be there? Yes. Can you bring something? Yes. How about this exercise? Yes, 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 yes. I can do anything and I can do everything. And behind the scenes, how are we going to do? Where are we going to get? Well, how did this happen? Because we said yes. When we should have said, thank you for the invitation, but I have to decline. Didn't even have to say no. I decline. When's the last time you went somewhere with just your spouse? You weren't visiting anyone there was no agenda other than spending uninterrupted, unrushed time together. Is this important? Is this necessary? Does this happen by itself? Naturally, in the course of the day I just described, all of a sudden you're runting frantically and both of you, bing! I have three and a half hours with nothing to do. Me too. We could just hang out together. Never happens. This is one of my favorite places on earth. You are getting to behold something so wonderful, so amazing. And I'm sharing it with you in part today. This is my New Hampshire. This is an amazing place. This is a little cabin built over 100 years ago. The floors are slanted. Doors have been cut off so that they will shut. It's quiet. There's a screened-in porch here. There's French doors that we're looking out of taking this picture. 
There's a tiny cramped room that a bed barely fits into. And when I say barely, you both have to crawl in from the same side. You can't crawl out off the foot. You can't crawl out. Well, you can crawl this side and be in the porch, I suppose. It's tiny, but we love it because it's quiet. It's peaceful. It's solitary. When we go up to this little cabin in New Hampshire, we've been several times. You may have heard, oh, Pastor Wright's up in New Hampshire. The best part about this, close your ears, kids. The kids are at home. They're at Nana and Papa's or Nanny and Poppy, someplace else. They're taken care of. The laundry's being folded. The food's being prepared. And it's just the two of us kayaking, hiking. On this hike right here, this was this last fall, we were hiking up. I don't even remember the name of the peak. And we're going up, up, up. Everybody we pass, how's the view? No view. Did you see anything? Nothing. Socked in. Don't waste your time. Finally, we get to the top. And as we get to the top, we see it just go across. And we get this amazing view. The wind is blowing. It's cold. We quick eat our picnic lunch, the whole thing. And then right about the time that we leave, we turn around and at the same time, and it's socked in again. That was amazing. Look what God did for us, we were saying. New Hampshire. It revives us as we spend unrushed, unhurried time. Here's Elizabeth painting. Did you know she paints? Not in Hendersonville, she doesn't. (laughs) Where are you going to find the time? New Hampshire, let's bring the paints. So I like to prepare the food. We bring it out. We eat on the dock. We watch it get dark. It's incredible. Maybe you can see how this revives us. We get up. We sleep however long we want to. We might go for a jog. We'll read our Bibles for as long as we need to. I'm tired. Let's go back to bed. Okay, there's no agenda. It's incredible. We have time to think, have time for conversation. The problem is we don't need New Hampshire one week out of the year. We need it all throughout the year. We need to pull out our calendar and schedule more of this. And I'm not saying we as in Elizabeth and I. I'm saying we as in we, don't we? Church. I believe if we had more of this, we wouldn't have as much of the, of the that, if I can say it that way. The stuff that we deal with in marriages and in relationships and in our spiritual walk and, and with, with lack of faith and stress and all of these things. Now, it's not realistic, I understand, to have that kind of a setting, that kind of environment, that kind of carefree. We have responsibility. We have things to do. But how much do we add on and pile on that creates us to be in such a frenzy that we say, I'm busy to the point. And this is where busyness becomes quite sinful. To the point that those things that are most important get left out and pushed to the side. This morning, we're continuing our series on Paul, a man of grace and grit is kind of the theme that we're going on here. Uh, And it's been a little bit chopped up, I understand, but that's okay. We're going to keep marching through. And you may recall, we've been watching as Paul has gone from a hardened persecutor of the followers of Jesus. You see him there in the, in the right, holding the clothes of those that are throwing rocks and stones to a man humbled by the Almighty God. And his Damascus Road experience. And then the miracle of the scales falling from Saul's eyes. In fact, that's where we left Paul last. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn back to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to try and pick up this story where we left off. Because there is something here in this piece that we desperately need today. So I hope you brought your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 9. 
And we're going to pick up the story in verse 18, repeating ourselves just a little bit so that you don't get nervous that we've missed something. Acts chapter 9, verse 18 says, immediately there fell from his, Saul's eyes, something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. Now you may recall he was there waiting for three days, it said in verse 9, without sight, with nothing to eat or to drink. He has truly been fasting, maybe even wondering if he had a reason to live. Is this in fact true? Have I been persecuting the followers of the true God? And so then when Ananias comes and the scales fall, he stands up and he wants to be baptized. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who call on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. It seems as if From that first moment, Saul jumped in with both feet and began preaching and teaching, amazing and confounding everyone, that immediately Saul is this man of great spiritual depth. Now, granted, he had a lot of background. He knew a lot of the scriptures, but we also have to recognize his whole world was flipped upside down. And I imagine, yes, while they were amazed and confounded, I imagine it had more to do with the fact of who was doing the teaching then perhaps what the teaching was. I think it had to do with the fact that this was coming from the mouth of Saul of Tarsus. And if we stay here in Acts, we don't really see a key piece of Saul's experience. I mean, we sort of get a hint in verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, but we can read right over that very quickly. But how many days have passed? And if we don't stop and take a deeper look, I think we miss a key piece of Saul's experience. We might be tempted to think that it's unimportant, insignificant, but I believe it is very significant because in Galatians, Saul speaks of a time of solitude, a time of reflection, a time spent away all alone to think of the implications of this newfound faith, to come to terms to what it meant to be a messenger of grace. And so if you have your Bibles open, I invite you now to turn to Galatians, just beyond 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. And we're in Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to begin just a moment in verse 10. Galatians chapter 1, written by Paul. We're beginning here in verse 10. And here Paul writes, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly jealous for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Notice that first part. If I were still trying to please men. The old Saul of Tarsus lived with an ever-imposing drive to please people. He lived for the affirming nod of the Sanhedrin. He lived for their approval, looking at this talented young man. Oh, he's moving up. He's assertive. He's striving. He's determined. He's intense. He's a fighter. He's passionate. He's going places. And their smiles and affirming gestures fed his pride. Saul was a people pleaser. He was a yes man. Can you be there? Of course. Can you do this? Absolutely. Can you fill in? I would be delighted. But the Damascus Road experience began a process to change all of that. Now he is not a slave to man and their opinions, but he's a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. No longer living for everyone else. That'll run you ragged, by the way. Well, I have to please everyone. You can't. Well, I have to try. You don't. But if I don't, then they're going to. And Saul finally determined he's no longer living for everyone else, but rather he is living for an audience of one. Why? Verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's room and called me through his grace, set me apart, we could say. For what purpose? Verse 16 and 17, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Those were those who actually walked with Jesus. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Here, Paul deliberately mentions two things he did not do. The first, he didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. That is other people. He didn't go borrowing the religious experience of others, of someone else. And secondly, he didn't rush to Jerusalem to present himself to the apostles, the very men who walked with Jesus. Why these two things? Because he's making the point. Paul wants us to understand that his Christian message was not derived from others, but from God. And secondly, he was not commissioned by those who had gone before him. He was directly commissioned by Jesus. Paul didn't have a secondhand understanding of Jesus, but a firsthand, personal, life-changing experience with the living Christ. Do you have that this morning? Is it firsthand? Is it life-changing? Is it personal? Do you know why you're a Christian? Do you know why you're a Seventh-day Adventist? Do you own your faith, or are you just here on the coattails of somebody else's faith? I'm not sure faith is something we can borrow from another. And that was not sufficient for Paul. He wanted a firsthand experience. And when and where did he gain his insight? Well, verse 17 says he went to Arabia. Verse 18 says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. You combine that with Acts, he's in Damascus, but not for long. They try and kill him. He has to escape. So where does he spend these three years? Arabia. Scholars agree. You might be scratching your head saying, where's Arabia? 
Well, if you look here on the map, Arabia is down here in this bottom corner. You can see Damascus up there. Arabia is kind of this whole region. And so from Damascus, you could be, quotes, in Arabia and maybe 100 miles in the northern corner there. But let me tell you, there's not much of anything there. It's vast expanse. It's miles of desert. This is the closest we came on our trip this last spring. And let me tell you, there is nothing out there. It's rocks. It's sand. There's a few mountains. But it's a whole lot of nothing. Perhaps an occasional caravan, and you can see them coming from long away. Let me tell you, there's a camel. One, two, three. How many miles away do you think they are? I don't know. Where do you think they're going? Well, I'm not real sure. What do you think they're carrying? Let's go find out. How come? Because we got nothing else to do. Isolation, solitude, quietness. And Paul doesn't give us any details. We just know he's there for three years. I would think if he was there to do something big and incredible, to have a series, to have baptisms, to raise up churches, we'd hear about it. But it's not there. It's a passing reference. It's a rather quiet reference. No, I think the large point of this time was isolation. To be cut off from his former manner of life. Some have suggested Saul needed three years or the disciples needed three years. I don't know. But I do think it is safe to say that Saul had a thousand plus days to be alone and to think, to pray, to wrestle, to listen. And if he was ever addicted to popularity, these three years in the desert perhaps was his cure. I think I might be having a bad hair day. Nobody cares. And I'm convinced it was there in that barren place of obscurity that the Lord molded Paul. I believe it's there that Paul developed and fleshed out, if you will, his theology. In the quiet communion with God, not in debating with colleagues, not in arguments with others, but in quiet time with God. I believe it was there in Arabia, of all places, that Paul came to truly understand grace. Yes, it was shown to him, but he needed time to ponder it to fully understand and put together the pieces of the crucifixion and the resurrection in light of heaven's sanctuary, the justification, the sanctification, the judgment, the fulfillment of prophecy, the second coming of Jesus. I imagine all of that took place perhaps in some obscure cave in Arabia. Maybe he too was like Doug Batchelor and he just lived way up here in the mountains and he had his little pool that he would swim in. I don't know. But it was here in the desert that Saul turned his religious credentials over for a vibrant, living, transforming relationship with Jesus Christ that he had never had before. Perhaps it was in Arabia that Saul concluded and later wrote in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 that Ethan read for us this morning. Whatever things were gained to me, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The problem with too many Christians today is we've traded solitude for busyness. We've traded quietness for activity. We've traded obscurity to an always-on internet connection in our hands. We don't even know how to be alone anymore. We can't stand for things to be quiet. So even our vacations are filled with constant activity go, 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 go. We got to wake up early. We got to be here on time. We paid good money for this. And after that, we got to go here and here and here. And this restaurant closes at this time and on and on and on. This vacation's wearing me out. Even in the church, we're quick to conclude 
that the depth of our relationship with God means I'm busy, I'm active, I'm involved, I'm doing, I'm going, I'm there, I'm early, I'm practicing. Now we need all those things to be done. But somehow we've gotten the idea that it's those things. It's that busyness that makes me connected to God. And the reality of the matter is quite the opposite. All of those things of the busiest people, those that are zealous, if you will, to use a Saul adjective. Some of the busiest people can be coasting on fumes, desperately needing solitude and quietness with God. Because those times are essential for our spiritual depth and our emotional survival, for our relationships to prosper. But we trade that all in for busyness. And sometimes the worse it gets, the more busy we need to be so we can crowd out the voices in our head that are telling us, you've got to slow down. No, 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 I'm busy. The reality of the matter is this. Time spent with Jesus in quietness, in solitude, saves time. It never loses time. What you call sharpening the saw makes you more effective. Prioritize better. Maybe to allow others to do things instead of you doing everything. God can give you greater clarity, greater vision, and point out some blind spots, some time wasters, some areas you're out of sync with his will. You mean it's God's will that I quit this department? Maybe. And how can you be more effective at home, in work, in ministry, in everything? God wants to show you, but you're too busy to ask. You're too busy to seek it out. Acts of the Apostles describing this portion of Saul's experiences. Soon their astonishment at his conversion was changed into intense hatred like that which they had shown toward Jesus. The opposition grew so fierce that Paul was not allowed to continue his labors at Damascus. A messenger from heaven bade him leave for a time, and he went into Arabia, where he found a safe retreat. Nothing out there. Here in the solitude of the desert, Paul had ample opportunity for quiet study and meditation. He calmly reviewed his past experience and made sure work of repentance He sought God with all his heart, resting not until he knew for certainty that his repentance was accepted and his sin pardoned. Maybe that's where we got Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He longed for the assurance that Jesus would be with him in his coming ministry. And so he emptied his soul of the prejudices and traditions that had hitherto shaped his life and received instruction from the source of truth. Jesus communed with him and established him in the faith, bestowing upon him a rich measure of wisdom and grace. And of all places, where is this all taking place? Arabia. And this is incredible. When the mind of man is brought into communion with the mind of God, when those two come together, the finite with the infinite, the effect on body, mind, and soul is beyond estimate. Did you catch that? When the mind of man is brought into communion with the mind of God, the finite with the infinite, the effect on the body, mind, and soul is beyond estimate. Nobody can measure it. It's too huge. It's too large. And then she goes on, in such communion is found the highest education. I thought Saul already had the highest education. Not yet. He hadn't been to Arabia yet. Communion with God. You can know a whole lot of stuff and not know God. You can win every Bible trivia game that's out there but not know Jesus. So a few pointers, then we'll go. I call this Arabia 101. Don't worry, we're not gonna go on a field trip today. First thought here, instead of speeding up, slow down and rethink. I don't have time to rethink. Well, then that's a a sure sign you need to slow down and rethink. Take time to think about what really matters. Are you investing in your kids? Well, they're all grown and out of the house. They still need you. They still need your support, your phone calls. Are you investing your time and resources in things that really matter? Is your stuff serving you or are you serving your stuff? Saul took some time to rethink. 
to watch the sun rise and set, to watch the swirl of the sand, those little waves that the wind makes, to relive where he had been, what he had done, to think about God's call on his life, of what was the greatest importance and what wasn't important at all. I think it was in Arabia that Paul stopped trying to keep up with the Joneses and started making every decision based on God alone. Audience of one, it's a whole lot easier. I'm going to make God happy. I'm going to please God. and I'm going to let everything else fall where it may. Proverbs 4.26. Ponder the path of thy feet. All thy ways be established. Have you taken any time lately to ponder the path of your feet? There's nothing more discouraging on a road trip. It happened to me one time, more than one time. You think you're going in the right direction. You think you're making good time. You're trying to get good gas mileage. All of these things. You're comparing gas prices, you know. If we go a little further, we'll save, you know, 50 cents. Four hours later, wrong road. (laughs) How could this be? How do we miss our turn? I mean, there was one time, I won't get into it. I think we were six hours out of our way. Another time with a friend of mine going out west, we were supposed to go this way. We went. It was like eight hours out of our way. I mean, this is stressful. We're naive to think that we don't do this in life. We go eight hours, 40 hours, a thousand hours out of our way. And God says, consider your path. I know you're getting good gas mileage, but it's in the wrong direction. Don't fill every moment with sound and activity. Don't jog with music blaring in your ears. You don't have to have the radio on every second you're in the car. Turn off the TV. There is a button on the remote that will do that. Turn off the smartphone. Oh, now I've gone to meddling. I mean, what? What if I get an important text or phone call? Folks, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but people will survive without you. Life will go on. You don't have to respond within 10 seconds of every request. Because what can end up happening is that little device can bulldoze any and every quiet time that you might possibly have. Ding, ding, bang, bang, whatever it is. I mean, I hear that's what passengers that sounds like. It's a train. Is it yours or your brother's? Your brother's. Okay, I'm sorry. It can bulldoze any time that we're having. I'm just going to turn it off and there'll be a set time. I'm going to check my messages. You can do that. In fact, why don't you just turn off all your notifications and check your email when you want to check it? Just a thought. I know what will happen if, if you try that. Some of you will start to fidget. You want to do something else. But turn off the news commentator. Turn off the sports enthusiast. Put down the magazine. Learn to be okay with silence. Are you saying it's just got to be quiet in our house 24? No, I'm not saying that. But if you have a full pack schedule like a lot of people do, there's no silence in your day until your head hits the pillow. We need to be able to think, to pray, to listen. Now, I just have to throw this in here. Somebody might say, well, Pastor Wright, he was he preaching this new age sermon about how to empty your mind. No, I'm not telling you how to empty your mind. This is not a new age thing. This is what life used to be before we started to be bombarded every second with noise. Walking to school with no earbuds. It used to happen. Riding your horse into town with no radio. Connecting with our kids without buzzing interruptions. For others, it's not the stuff. Maybe it's your own mouth. Some of us talk so much we can't even remember what we've said. It's an inflation of words. We formulate answers to questions that nobody's asking. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. We have a hard time with that. We want to read it. Be active. Be moving. Be doing. All the time. Be still. I like this one. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Too often we push that verse aside and we say, I'm going to fight for me. And he'll let you do that. You might spend all kinds of hours fighting for you. But if you would have just been still, God says, let me do it. Let me take care of it. How are we going to know that's what God's asking us to do if there's no time in our day when we're still? 
in solitude, in quietness. Job 6, 24, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. Now, other people can show you where you've been wrong, but the best place to hear it is from God because he's so kind, he's so gracious, he's so loving and gentle. But yes, he'll point it out to you and he'll say, Dave, you're wrong. You need to correct this thing. But if I'm not taking that time in his word, I keep on plowing away. Arabia 101, last one. Stop seeking a place of power, but be still. Yes, a little repetitive. Get over it. Insecurity services as competition abounds. Some of the wealthiest people are some of the most insecure. They wear themselves out to be seen and liked and envied by all. The push for power is so evident it is sickening at times. And friends, ministers are not immune. Pressure to be super pastor, to visit everyone, to pray with everyone, to answer every phone call, to do every wedding and funeral, to be at every social. You got to go, 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 be, 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 and do, and always be available. But it's not just pastors. There's pressure to be super doctor, super businesswoman, super wealthy, super beautiful and in shape. And the list goes on. I have to be somebody. Everyone in a race to the top. But sadly, some of the loneliest people are at the top. They've reached the top, but they're lonely, empty, and desperately looking for meaning. Because they have attained everything, but they've discovered that at the top, there's nothing. No, image needs to be replaced with integrity. Ruthless needs to be replaced with selfless caring. Insecurity needs to be replaced with secure with who I am in Jesus Christ. Superficial needs to be replaced with genuine. Fitting it all in needs to be replaced with prioritizing. Pleasing others needs to be replaced with doing what God wants. What's the phrase? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Just look at TV stars, movie stars, music stars, sport stars. They simply cannot handle the power or the prestige. The applause intoxicates them because they know nothing of living a simpler, deeper life in solitude and quietness and obscurity. It's all lights. It's all glitz and glamour. Granted, Solomon reminds us that there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. But are we taking any time to be silent and listen to the voice of God? Or has every other voice drowned him out in a race to the top? The truth is, even in this story, solitude, quietness, they get little press. But in God's economy, I believe they're essential. Remember Moses? He was positioned for a remarkable political future, but he was not ready. And God put him in the desert with sheep for 40 years. David was anointed king as a teen. But after his heroic victory over Goliath, he spent the next 13 years as a fugitive. But some of David's most beloved psalms were born out of this crucial or crucible, if you will, of solitude. Joseph, thrown in jail because of this deceitful rant of Potiphar's seductive wife, and spent two years in prison feeling forgotten and abandoned. Elijah was strengthened for the showdown in isolation where? At the brook Cherith. John the Baptist spent much of his time in isolation in the desert. As preparation to deliver a bold message. I'm convinced that those sustained periods of solitude and quietness prepared each of them to be an effective servant of the Lord. Why didn't David assume the role at age 17? Wasn't he more qualified than that babbling, self-willed Saul? Actually, he wasn't. Why didn't Moses lead the children of Israel out of Egypt at age 40? Well, I don't think he was ready then either. God still had to work on his proud heart. And what about you and me? Well, perhaps we need to spend more time in Arabia because our strength lies in our solitude with God. Do you believe that? This week was 4th of July. I don't know how you spent the day. The day that we remember the independence of this nation. But I asked the simple question, would our nation be here without this simple principle that we're talking about today? 
give you one such example. The overall fighting in the Revolutionary War was not going well for the Americans. The British had taken and occupied Philadelphia, which was the colonial capital of America. The weary American army was on the verge of collapse. Congress, give us money. We need money. They didn't have any money for supplies to provide for these soldiers. Many of the soldiers did not have blankets or clothes or even shoes, and it's winter. It was noted that you could see where the army had marched in the snow by the bloody trail they left behind. That's rough. Washington, George Washington, did all he could to keep the army together. To keep morale up, he stayed with them during the difficult cold and freezing temperatures. Yet during this difficult time is when General George Washington was observed. And do you know how he was observed? Kneeling in the snow praying by himself, pouring out his heart to God for help, for strength, for wisdom. What do we do now? Historians largely agree that it was the will and resolve of Washington that kept the army together during this difficult time. And where, I ask you, did he get this will and resolve? I believe none other than from these quiet moments with his Savior on his knees. Well, in the spring of 1778, Washington received some much-needed help with supporting generals. Further, France agreed to join the Americans. The tide of the war was beginning to change in favor of the, well, it was the United States, the Americans. What would be? And it's now known as the Winter of Valley Forge. Folks, whether it be a time as a shepherd, 40 years in the wilderness, two years in a forgotten prison, the desert of Arabia, or a quiet wood in the midst of a harsh, endless winter in Valley Forge, God longs to prepare us to break us, to mold us, to fashion us, and to empower us. But first, we have to be still, to turn off all this stuff, to spend meaningful time in communion with God. You mean every morning? Sounds like a great idea. How about one full day a month, just myself, a journal, and my Bible up on the parkway? Yeah, that sounds good too. How about a week vacation with little to do but commune with God? That sounds like a good idea as well. But if you're like me, it will never happen without pulling out the calendar. And so I challenge you this evening as the sun sets, put some times in, mark off some weekends, some days. If you're going to choose, okay, once a month, I'm going to take a spiritual retreat. I'm going to say no to some stuff that will allow me to do that. Maybe you can't do a whole day. Maybe it's like four or five hours. Okay, fine. Craft it however you want, but spend some unrushed, unhurried, uninterrupted time with God. Sabbaths are great. But we can fill up Sabbath like any other day, just doing Sabbath activities, right? They're good activities. It's fellowship. It's, it's a hike in nature and all these other things. But it's entirely different when it's just you and God alone. And if you choose to do that, I think you'll come back a better man, a better woman, a better spouse, a better father, better mother, a better church leader, even a better employee. So I think it's high time we slow down, turn off, stop seeking a place of power. Saul did. And God used him to turn upside down the world. Dear Heavenly Father, I imagine some here this morning are recognizing this need to minimize the busyness and to schedule in times of quiet, of solitude, of being alone with you for even an extended period from time to time. I imagine there's also some doubters here that say, but I'm too busy. I can't afford to do that. But Lord, I'm convinced we can't afford not to. Lord, if we're truly going to live after your will and your plan, we also need to follow your example. We need to connect with you on a regular basis. We need to pray on a regular basis. We need to spend some alone and quiet time as that is the most important thing. So Lord, help us to trust 
that if we truly seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these minutes, all these hours, all these days will be added unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.